The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Schizophrenia Community Radio. By listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio, you'll be joining, supporting, and gaining strength from the schizophrenia community. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Well, welcome to Episode 9 of Schizophrenia Community Radio. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is family caregivers for family members living with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness. Schizophrenia in 2012 was reported by 359,000 Canadians over the age of 15 who told Statistics Canada that they had been given the diagnosis of schizophrenia or psychosis. Schizophrenia affects men and women with equal frequency. Schizophrenia most often appears in men in their late teens or early 20s or in women in their late 20s or early 30s. Schizophrenia is characterized by psychotic symptoms, which involve difficulties maintaining contact with reality, which may include hallucinations, that's hearing voices or seeing things that are not based in reality, delusions, which are distorted false beliefs and disorganized thought processes, and false memories. Schizophrenia interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, manage emotions, make decisions and relate to others. Schizophrenia impairs a person's ability to function to full potential when it's not treated. Schizophrenia has no single form of treatment and schizophrenia treatment is often complex and must be individualized. All of which is why our topic Family caregivers for family members living with schizophrenia is so important for family caregivers and their family members. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Penny McCourt. Now, Penny worked with older adults and their families in the community, long-term care and acute care settings for many years. She holds a bachelor and Masters of Social Work from the University of Manitoba and a PhD from the University of Victoria. Her doctoral and postdoctoral studies focused on aging, mental health, and service delivery. Her current research interests are caregiving, mental health promotion, and social inclusion. As a project for the Family Caregiver Advisory Committee of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, she authored a document called National Guidelines for a Comprehensive Service System to Support Family Caregivers of Adults with Mental Health Problems and Illnesses, and also another document entitled Taking the Guidelines Off the Shelf, Mobilization Toolkit. An important part of of Penny's project was consulting across Canada with adults living with mental health issues, families and service providers. So welcome to the show, Penny. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
Great. Now, please tell us about the Mental Health Commission of Canada and the work of the Family Caregiver Advisory Committee. Penny? The Mental Health Commission of Canada was formed just over 10 years ago, I believe, and the idea was uh, that it was going to be a coordinating agent to try and improve the, he the healthcare system and the social service system for people suffering from mental illness. They recognized that the system wasn't working well and the needs of people with mental illness were being poorly met, as were the needs of family caregivers, as were the needs of service providers. So they, they undertook a mission to develop a strategy for Canada around mental health that covered off home, work, school, and they worked with healthcare providers, families, people with mental illness to develop the strategy. The Family Caregiver uh, Advisory Group was one of the number of groups that were set up initially to advise the commission, which was made up of partners from the community, from the healthcare system, family members, people with mental illness, huge, all across the country. And they had these spin-off groups, the Family Advisory Group, to sort of advise them on issues that were important to that particular sector. So that's who they are. And the work of the Family Caregiver Advisory Committee, the main piece of work actually is this document, which is aimed at creating a better system that is more supportive of family caregivers. It's all built on the recognition that people with mental illness need the support of family caregivers. Family caregivers want to provide this support, but the system doesn't always make it easy. Right. Now, next question is really to tell us any more that you'd like to tell us about the purposes of the project as a whole uh -huh. and the way these purposes relate to adults living with serious mental health issues like particularly schizophrenia uh -huh. and to their families and their service providers. Penny? Okay. Well, as you know, and as you said in your introduction, actually, people with schizophrenia have some very difficult uh, symptoms to deal with and that these symptoms can, you know, are episodic sometimes, they can change over time. They're, they're challenging. The kind of services they need can be in the community or they can be in a hospital, they can be in a, uh, a whole variety of places. Uh, they interact quite often with the police. They interact with the, uh, say the, the uh, financial services, what we would call the welfare, and so on. Those kind of symptoms are often really difficult for, uh, for them to deal with, but also for families to deal with. So the idea of the Family Caregiver Advisory Group was how can you support families to support people with schizophrenia and other, other serious mental illnesses as well. It was all built on the, on the sort of the idea that well-supported family caregivers can play a facilitative role in the recovery journey of people with serious and persistent mental illness and that at the same time caregivers themselves suffer from a lot of challenges in providing that care and experience quite often a great deal of financial, social, emotional stress, challenges in balancing um, you know, other responsibilities with the needs of the person they're trying to care for. And the system just wasn't responsive to that. There's a lot of historical reasons and others for that. So they set out to create this guidelines that could be used to change the system that would involve caregivers in system planning and policy making and implementing and evaluating better services to support people with schizophrenia and other, other serious mental illnesses, but also that would support them so they didn't become collateral damage in the process. Right. Now, you, I want to go back to something 
we mentioned before, and that is the consulting that you did uh-huh. across Canada with adults living with mental health issues, families and service providers. And please, would you tell us about your, your own impressions of the experiences uh-huh. that they described to you? Penny? Well, we did, as you say, we went across Canada. We talked to many caregivers. We talked to people living with mental illness and also service providers and nonprofits. The overwhelming sort of impression I had throughout that experience was wow, the system is broken and it doesn't meet the needs. You know, families are really pushed out of the system. There doesn't seem to be a place for the system. They felt helpless, hopeless, you know, having a terrible time trying to get services for someone and a terrible time in getting support for themselves, a lack of knowledge across the spectrum that uh, a stigma, you know, issues like that were that were affecting them. Very challenging situation for them, costing them emotionally, socially, physically, and also financially, many people were supporting their, you know, supporting their their loved one, their person with living with a mental illness financially. Most most of the people we talked to were parents. We also talked to others. Many of the people we were talking to were also supporting somebody else, like a, an older family member or another child, you know, in addition to the person that ha- was living with a mental illness. So they really had a lot of challenges and. It was really very, very difficult for them to get any support. That was, I think, during especially crisis periods, getting the diagnosis and get and during crisis periods seemed to be the biggest challenges. And there were, you know, really sad stories about alienation from the person with the illness as well, because people just didn't know, didn't know have the support and didn't know how to interact with the person during different periods of the disease, of the illness that the uh, person living with mental illness was experiencing certain kind of symptoms. So it was very, very um, sad, actually, very sad, but very motivating in terms of trying to get some system change where there would be more support for family caregivers. They are the backbone, ultimately, of the system. Did you... in in listening to people describing their experiences, did you get any impression perhaps that they experienced guilt, um, Mm -hmm. that they felt that they were not doing enough or had not done enough, and even perhaps that the very illness was somehow their fault? Penny? Definitely. There is, of course, the whole historical piece where at one time families were considered the fault, especially the mothers. You know, that still kind of lingers on in the system. But people, you know, people felt helpless within facing the system. So they did feel very guilty. They felt very upset that they couldn't make a difference, that they couldn't get the services for the person they were caring for. They felt guilty that they had done something wrong somewhere along the way or they weren't doing enough, but they were also exhausted and also had tried everything. And then the difficulty, of course, with the kind of symptoms that they were dealing with made it very hard to connect sometimes with the person that they were caring for and the person that they were caring for sometimes rejected them. There were a lot of difficulties around maintaining that relationship as well as the maintaining relationships, balancing relationships with other children in the family, for example, or for or at work, that were, you know, going to have repercussions for them in other areas. So I would say that my biggest impression was they were tearing their hair out and they were distraught and they were in grief, 
grief because of the illness having occurred in the first place, guilt about what they might have had to do with it, helpless and feeling inadequate to deal with the situation, and angry, angry that it was so hard. Sometimes, unfortunately, that anger was directed at the person who had the illness because it was not understood what the, you know, what the illness actually was. And just very quickly, would it be right to say that they would feel alone in what they yes, were going through? very much so. And that was the other part too. People weren't very connected to each other. There weren't a lot. There weren't support groups around as there are, say, for Alzheimer's disease. There are people, uh, caregivers can go someplace, get support and education. That wasn't the case. And especially in rural areas, you know, that there were less services available for people there than elsewhere. So definitely alone, and of course because of the stigma, people don't often don't always share right. the experience or even the diagnosis, even with other family members, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, that kind of thing. Right, Penny, we have come to the time where what I always say is we have to pay the rent. That is to say, we've got to take <laughs> a, sh a short break. So we'll do that now. Okay. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley. My guest is Dr. Penny McCourt. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Penny McCourt. Our topic is family caregivers for family members living with schizophrenia. Penny, now let's talk about the challenges for the adults who are living with the serious mental issues such as schizophrenia and for their families and service providers. So first, first question, what Penny, do you see as the most challenging of the challenges that you identified for adults living with serious mental illnesses, health issues such as schizophrenia? And why are these challenges so challenging? Penny? Mm, What a good question. I think, well, I think, first of all, it's very hard to get a diagnosis. And as we all know, the younger a person gets a diagnosis, the more likely they are going to be able to get treatment and go into recovery earlier. So the very first thing is, I would say, an overall lack of understanding of mental illness and certainly serious mental illness. So things sometimes don't get picked up right away by families or by anybody. By you know, And when they go to the physician, one of the things we heard was quite often, initially, if they take a young person and explain about these symptoms, it's just kind of passed off. It's not taken seriously. It's seen as a stage, those kinds of things. So it can take a long time to get that diagnosis. The importance of diagnosis isn't just for the early intervention and the treatment. It's also so the family understands what's going on. The other part of that is that when people... It's with it's, there's the illness itself with the specific symptoms, but like you said in your, your initial introduction, Gordon, it's the whole... The effect on cognition, on relationships, on on what people are, how well people are able to function. So when people are diagnosed young or not diagnosed, but experiencing symptoms when they're young, this will disrupt their relationships. They're not going to do well in school. If they're working in a job, like things are going to be problematic there. Often, I think it's not as much or only the illness and its symptoms, but it's all the things that happen after that. The young person doesn't develop the skills like other people his age might because of these issues he's going through in terms of getting or keeping a job. Relationships may suffer and that can be with friends as well as with families. And all of this is going on without necessarily even a label put on it or an understanding just that this, you know, there's something wrong with this person. I think, uh, you know, you can run even into there's stigma, stigma all across the system, which is part, or actually I mean all across society, which sometimes makes it hard for um, this illness to be identified. People don't want to see it necessarily. I remember one rural family saying that the doctor, you know, was very, a good doctor, somebody they liked a lot, but he kind of poo-pooed them, even though they felt for sure there was something really going on. And it was his way, they felt, of trying to be kind, but in reality, it wasn't kind. I think the the other kinds of things like that come after people don't have the skills, maybe the, uh, the, they're not developing the skills, the life skills that they need. You can get into situations of homelessness, of poverty, those kinds of things. Uh, services, the services to get into the system beyond that diagnosis, they're scarce. They're often hard to get into. It depends where you live. They're not necessarily that responsive. I think at this point, other things start to happen again with the relationship such that people may have to go on to social assistance. Well, the rules around social assistance and eligibility and other social programs related, related to housing, for instance, aren't always very responsive to the needs of this population. And again, I think that comes back to lack of education about the illness across the country, 
across sectors, and also the stigma associated with mental illness. Right. Now that takes us into the next question, which is, what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges for families caring with members with these kind of issues like schizophrenia? And why are these challenges so challenging? Penny? I think the most the biggest challenge of all is accepting that the person has this illness and gaining some kind of I guess accepting the person that has this illness, understanding the symptoms, that's really hard and they don't have the support for that. But I think the worst thing that I heard people talking about was trying to get help for this person. And I mean medical help, but I also mean other kinds of help too, you know, for physical conditions, housing, financial help, schools, you know, uh, support groups, recreation, anything, trying to get that kind of help for them, banging on doors, especially when they're adults, banging on doors and not being able to get anywhere because of issues around confidentiality and privacy, for one thing, around autonomy, this is an, this is an adult being treated as an adult and therefore the parent hasn't really got, and, I, and there were a lot of parents we talked to, the parent hasn't got a... Um, they're not seen as being able to speak on behalf of the person or necessarily even with the person who has the mental illness. And yet they feel very strongly that they need to help the person get the, the supports they need. And sometimes with the, the, the um, symptoms, the person's not able to reach out and get those, help, those resources. They're not aware of those resources either. So I think that is the biggest challenge. The second biggest challenge it, so seeing that there are not services for their kids and then seeing that what services are there are not accessible, that aren't adequate, not being involved in the discharge planning if they come into a um, hospital, for instance, and wondering what's happening to them in the hospital, that drives people mad, spouses as well as families, uh, family uh, parents, I should say. I guess another thing is the... Um, you know, getting in for any information themselves about what this disease is, you know, because again of the privacy and confidentiality, freedom of information, things, the way those are interpreted by different healthcare providers in dif different parts of the system, they may not be told anything about the symptoms, about how to manage the symptoms. And yet you've got somebody who perhaps is delusional and the average person, including that caregiver, that family caregiver doesn't know how to interact with that. And in the, in the name of confidentiality, they're not given that information necessarily. That could be different, and we'll talk about that later. I think the stigma, they feel very stigmatized, as we said earlier, but uh, they feel stigmatized inside the system and outside the system, but mostly they feel very helpless against the system, very helpless and unable to act in an effective way. And sadly, sometimes what happens is the family relationships break down altogether between the, the person with the illness and the family out of frustration, out of misunderstandings, out of violence sometimes, you know, things that happen that they can't deal with, don't know what to do with. And it's a, it's a they feel like there's no help out there. I heard stories about uh, when the police had to be called and they, you know, taken away, they didn't expect what happened. Five officers come to the door, drag the person out, and then nothing for them. You know, no kind of support. They're devastated. They're absolutely traumatized. No support for them, no access to the person. 
to the, that was emplaced in hospital against their will. Just really, really sad stories like that. So, I, you know, that's, I think, incredibly yes. hard. Incredibly hard. And unfair. Now, yes. Right. Now, the next question is the most challenging of the challenges for service providers. What do you mm. see as the, what do you see them those challenges to be, Penny? Well, I think most service providers, of course, are compassionate and want to make a difference, and they they're in you know they want to help the people they deal with. The you know in the medical and the healthcare system, uh, those who don't aren't in mental health don't usually have very much knowledge about mental health issues. So the stigma you know that we talked about for family caregivers and for the person with the illness exists across the system that's difficult the service provider within the service providers themselves sometimes the culture in which they work doesn't promote um partnerships with family it promotes say um, an autonomy model for the person with the illness so they're not they don't have the education nor do they have it within their roles in the mental health system to work with families necessarily there are a few pockets where that's not true where they do work with families but by and large that's not part of their role and they don't have the education for that not necessarily the skills there are um resources in the community that are really crucial for these people suffering or living with the illness as well as for their families but all too often service providers aren't aware of those themselves if you look at the curriculums of the major healthcare professionals groups they don't have very much education at all about mental illness right. it's not part, necessarily part of their curriculum and certainly not about mental illness in families and that's you know the hopefully that will change too but there's it was in their roles too within systems there's little education that's uh, supported for healthcare providers to upgrade their skills because nowadays you can find information about family caregivers and about how to inform, uh, how to support them and about the resources needed but the roles are often quite narrow and patient orientated only so i think the last thing i'd say about that for service providers is nobody's got the resources everybody's working on scarce resources so you do get a narrowing you know there's not much flexibility in the system this is frustrating to them as well they don't they think the system's broken yes. and one of the big things is a lack of clear guidelines for them and protocols for themselves about what that relationship should be with the caregiver when the person with the illness is in the hospital for example or under treatment so you get vastly different across the country different areas uh, sectors you get vastly different approaches to family involvement for you know maybe even its individual so that's another uh, you know an issue they have is what should they be doing right now i'm just going to stop you just for a clarification on a word mm -hmm. you've used a couple of times um autonomy Mm. What does that actually mean in the context that you're talking about? Well, it's the idea that people can make decisions, self-determination. People can make decisions on their own behalf and that the decision, you may not like the decisions, but they have the right to make decisions that, you know, in your mind, you might think they're high risk or they're um, not safe or they're poor decisions. As long as people have cognitive capacity, 100% or close, not 100%, but good cognitive capacity, we don't question it. If you do something stupid, you can do something stupid. The issue uh, around autonomy is when people, you know, with living with mental illness as serious as schizophrenia are in the throes of some of the more serious symptoms, how able are they to make competent 
autonomous decisions in their own best interest. And here's where you run into the problems of uh, this, you know, the, the hospital when they are considered cognitively intact, the hospital working on the basis that this person can direct their own care and is making their decisions that they may not like them, but decisions that are okay for them. Whereas the family caregiver, the family who knows the person, who knows the history, who knows what the changes are, and who's aware, much more aware of how the person functions in the community, for example, generally may not even be heard, but their voice isn't like, what I meant by that is their stories might not be heard, but their input right. is not usually taken into account because the person is seen as autonomous or self-determining. Right. Now, at that point, we've got to go for the break again, but I hope we'll get an opportunity to go a little bit further into this because mm -hmm. this autonomy issue, as you've just been saying, is really quite a challenge. So we'll take the break now. This mm -hmm. is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Penny McCourt. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Penny McCourt. Our topic is family caregivers for family members living with schizophrenia. Now, we've been talking about challenges and challenging 
the most challenging of challenges. Now I'd like, Penny, please, you to talk about the most promising ways of coping with the challenging challenges. Um, you know, the, the people who live with the issues uh, such as schizophrenia and their families and service providers. So Penny, first question, what do you see as the most promising ways of overcoming the challenges for adults living with schizophrenia, serious mental health issues? What are the ways? Penny? Please. Okay, well, separating them all out, I guess, I guess the first thing is I think we need a more socially inclusive society, right? I think if there was a greater awareness about mental illness, about what the symptoms are, the fact that it's treatable, the fact that there's recovery, I think people living with mental illness would experience less stigma socially, just generally, in their own families, in the healthcare system, in employment and in schools. So I think that building awareness amongst the population, starting off in schools, you know, at young ages, about what mental illness is, that form of um, education, I think is really important and can make a difference to the context in which people experience these issues. I think that that also leads to more early identification. There's, if there's less stigma, people are more likely to come forward and say, you know, about the friend, tell the parents about the friend, the way the friend's been talking, and help get that earlier diagnosis. I think education for healthcare providers so that they're more able to diagnose and also more able to uh, work in partnership with families. It's a bit of a culture change, but I think that that also can help support people who are actually li living with the um, the mental illness because families as I said earlier are the backbone families are their main support and you want to keep the families involved so I think by anything you can do in that direction is going to help people towards their recovery I think the other kinds of other thing is having a a more coherent and connected service system that goes outside the hospital doors, outside the community mental health doors, and goes right across into employment, into schools, and into, uh, as well, things like housing, things like uh, social welfare, financial uh, social assistance. Those kinds of, of uh, agencies can be quite stigmatizing. They don't understand by uh, that some of their eligibility criteria how actually uh, disenfranchising that is for, for the, this population. So I think there's a lot of education in that area as well. I think the other thing too, and the, and the Mental Health Commission has done something with this uh, too, sort of a uh, teaching people in schools and universities across the country, wherever people come up in mental health first aid, just like you have responders if somebody has CPR, what do you do, or it's not CPR, but if somebody has a heart attack, what uh -huh. do you do if somebody is experiencing these symptoms, the disturbing, the more disturbing symptoms? How do you behave? What do you do? What do you say? And where do you go for help? So this kind of a, an approach kind of normalizes it a bit, takes some of the stigma away, and also ensures that people get help early in the right. process. Right. Now, what do you see as the most promising ways of overcoming the challenges for families caring for the adults we're talking about? 
Penny? Well, I think there's a number of things you could do. I think the one of the one of the big things again is education. Education for caregivers. If I have a son who's got a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, what can I expect? You know, what's the prognosis? I, I don't not the specifics necessarily to my son, but the prog you know, the whole gamut of what is involved in those uh, symptoms, how to help. I think that's a very important thing for people. Also support groups, peer support groups, so that caregivers who've been through the kind of experience that you're going through now, can they can support each other. You can support them. They can support you. You learn a lot from each other. I think that, that those kinds of support groups should be everywhere. I think there needs to be somebody that connects with families during crises. You know, if someone's taken into the hospital, if somebody is arrested by the police, if somebody, you know, living with a mental illness that turns up, I don't, I don't know, with the, in another city, for example, and uh, homeless, like where, where do they get their help? Where do they get their support? Who connects them to the, to the resources? Navigators would be inside the system are really important, and that would help people find... Uh, find a way around in the system, but the, those in the system need to know about the resources and make the referrals. So people need to have better access. I think the families also need to be assessed in their own right, the caregivers. Every time someone comes forward in a crisis, I think the mental health workers should be assessing the family and their cap capacity to cope, their understanding of the mental illness and the resources they've got available. Then they should be providing the necessary support or making referrals to a support group, to resources that could help the person, but also could help the family member. The family members experience a lot of stress and a lot on their own behalf. They may also have other issues going on, health issues, you know, other family issues, that kind of stuff. So I think they need to be, um, they need to be to assessed each time because the, the, just like the illness changes over time, the information needs are going to change over time as well. So I think that's a very important part. Uh, in some places they've got, in a, in a few places in Canada, they've got emergency peer support people. And say at the emergency department, if your son or daughter is admitted, they've got somebody there who can help you as a caregiver through the process. And that's a very, a very good thing that I think could help with some of the challenges at a crisis point. Right. Now, same question, but for service providers. What mm -hmm. do you see as the most promising ways of for them to overcome the challenges they encounter. Penny? Well, I think you need a, a better integrated system, and I think we need more resources for the system. I think that goes across the board. Um, but also, there needs to be a culture change that sort of that conceptualizes family members as partners in care, not as outsiders. I think that's a very important piece that would help caregivers. But in order to have that happen, you need to have a change within the system itself and how you see family caregivers. That needs to be in their policies and protocols, not on an individual basis of you know whether you get it or not. That has to be supported through education and skill building so that the, the people that come into contact with the family caregivers have the skills and the confidence to interact with them, that they have the information about mental illness to share with them that's accurate, and the information about community resources to share. They need to have support from their employers to get that information. There also needs to be an expectation from employers, and that can be in the way they write their job descriptions, it can be in the performance appraisals, it can be in the time made within the role, but people have to be able to get 
the skills and get the information to be able to share them and to have that, uh, you know, confidence and competence. So I think the, again, the other really big thing they could do is uh, to support service providers is to have very clear protocols about how they are to work with family members, especially around issues in inside hospitals and community mental health teams where a family member, uh, the um, adult with the, living with mental illness, hasn't brought the family with them. Right. Right? The family makes a call. What, what are they supposed to do? What kind of information can they share? as a service provider? How can they support that family? And that needs to be built into the system as an expectation. And that resonates too with what you were talking about uh, of regarding autonomy. Mm -hmm. That is to say, somebody, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, though I really am, I suppose, somebody <laughs> needs to figure out whether the individual is at this particular time in their lives, in this particular condition that they're in, are really able to make decisions in their own best interests, mm -hmm. whether they're listening just to the voices in their heads or That's something. That's right. Do you agree but with that? You, I do agree with that, Gordon, but it's also, though, even if they can, it's still the attitude. Like, if families are seen basically as outside of the treatment team, if you like, not part yep. of the treatment team or part of the care team, then what that means is, in some cases, if the it's assumed that the families won't be involved. It's assumed that they're not involved in discharge planning, even though they may be the people that are taking the person back home. Those assumptions about their non-involvement, their assumptions about not giving them information. In Australia, if the, a family person, a person living with mental illness says they don't want to involve their family or they don't want to bring their family into the treatment team, they, they don't just say, okay, fine. What they do instead is they explore that a little bit and they mm. try and build bridges between the family and the person living with the illness. They don't just leave it there because the assumption there seems to be that families should be partners in care and that if possible, you mend the relationship, you, work, you, you build the relationship, and you can give families lots of information that isn't specific to that person, even if he's directed you not to, but that's general about what you do if somebody is delusional, you know, how you, how you approach that. So I think there's a lot of things that can be done even when the person is declared competent or is seen as competent, mm -hmm. but still making perhaps uh, poor decisions. There's still ways that the family caregiver can be engaged and part of the process. Excellent. Now, something a little bit different. You you mentioned recovery. Is mm -hmm. recovery the same thing as cure? And if it isn't, what is it, Penny? Oh, oh that's a really out of left field there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but recovery is the basis. I mean, recovery really is the basis. Uh, the basis nowadays of uh, mental health treatment, isn't it? It's the understanding that people are, in fact, can be, uh, can recover. That these illnesses aren't, you know, a, um, something that'll necessarily go on forever and ever, and certainly not the same way. So, basically. What we're trying, what the Mental Health Commission was trying to do, and what the Family Care Advisory Group was trying to do, was to work towards a recovery-oriented system that would encourage partnerships with the service providers, the families and friends, to support those people in their journey towards recovery and well-being. So it's a system that's supposed to be built on the idea of hope, empowerment, self-determination, and responsibility. 
it's the idea that people fluctuate in terms of their illness and that people fluctuate in terms of their illness and also in terms of the consequences, the social, emotional, financial consequences are change, change over time as well and they go up and they go down. But recovery is always the goal. So you may, you know, it, it ties in very nicely with resilience. You may have a lot yes. of terrible things happen to you, but you can still, you know, come back up. Right. With the right support. Great. Now, once again, it's time for the break. So we're going to take that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Penny McCourt. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice of America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Penny McCourt. Our topic is family caregivers for family members living with schizophrenia. Let's talk more, Penny, please, about what more you would like you would like to see done to promote what you see as the most promising ways of coping with the challenges you described previously. So first question then is for you, what more would you like to see done to promote what you see as the most challenging of the challenges for adults living with 
schizophrenia and other serious mental illnesses and for their families. Penny? Okay, so for I guess one of the, one of the first things again would be awareness, right? And I think that in fact the Mental Health Commission does have an anti-stigma project and an awareness project that is going into schools and in uh, trying to get uh, information about mental illness and how to respond to it and so forth into the curriculum right down to grade school. I think that's a really important thing and something that we should all be supporting. I think the media can do a huge amount of service in terms of how they report issues around mental illness and also, you know, the kinds of in-depth articles they do that kind of bring uh, bring issues to light. And I think... Part of the thing is, as a society, we fear mental illness, and this is part about breaking down that fear and humanizing, if you like, making, you know, bringing the people forward with mental illness that uh, as your regular next door neighbor, the guy down the street, and so forth. And that I think the media could do a much better job of. In fact, the commission did a few years ago a number of years ago now, commission somebody for in the Globe and Mail to do articles every weekend on mental illness. And that really did make a difference. It was about the issues that they, they experience and the, the discrimination they experience as well, the social exclusion. I would like to see money put into, and I mean money, uh, not just, uh, I mean, it does take money, these things, right? I would like to see wraparound social supports for people living with mental illness so that you don't go from one place to another place to another place to get the supports that you need because stress is a very bad thing for people with mental illness and it can drive the symptoms even further. Take some of the stress out of the financial and the housing and some and the boredom issues, if you like, you know, finding things that people can do that they feel they're able to do, ways that they can contribute to society. All those are really important. I would like to see that. I would like to see that uh, a one-stop shop, really, in a way, for assessing people and provide, linking them up with services and following through to make sure that they're connected with services that actually exist all these issues are much more complex for people who live in rural areas or from, you know, who are um, diverse. Like I'm thinking in the GLBTQ community, I'm thinking of people from different cultural groups, you know, get for them to get these kinds of services or to get this awareness or even this education built into the system has to be there too, because they're even more marginalized than the average person living with schizophrenia. Right. So all that education. Good. Now, I'm only um, interrupting you because there's the tyranny of time we've got to yes. cope with. <laughs> and I'll come back to some of, something else about that in a moment. What more would you like to see done to promote what you see as the most promising ways for helping service providers coping with their challenges? Penny? Oh, service providers. Yes. I think, again, I think uh, that ch culture change that has to happen from the top and the bottom, I think uh, around making families partners in care, not abusing them, but making them partners in care, not holding the whole bag, getting support while they are trying to support the person that they're caring for. I would like to see people, family caregivers actually, organize themselves like the Alzheimer's Society did, in order to become an advocacy group for themselves, for the healthcare system, and give them some clout in the system, actually, and support for the, the people living with mental illness. I would like to see them take up 
the caregiver guidelines mobilization toolkit into the healthcare system and demand that some of the changes that are recommended there are made. That kind of pressure at the health region or at the provincial government levels, that's the kind of thing that's going to create the change that's going to be supportive of the, everybody, including the service providers, it's going to get the resources allocated for this unpopular population, and it's going to give the you know support the service providers in their roles. So I think that 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 covers off a whole lot of people. If you could get the caregivers mobilized, right at the grassroots, they're the ones that will make the change. Now, when you say mobilized, what mm -hmm. what that's a political term, Penny? Yep. What do you mean by it? Well, I think it's like it's grassroots, right? Like the yes. Alzheimer's Society formed itself out of small little chapters across the country when people came together and said, this is awful. You know, like we can't, we, yes. this is terrible for my mother or whatever. Out of that develops support groups. Out of that develops advocacy, linkages with the government, ultimately funding. And advocacy, the opportunity to sit down and say what they, you know, what they want, what they need. Getting caregivers onto boards, getting caregivers involved in planning and program development, that's all really important too because they can speak for the, they can, they're in the middle. They're between the service provider and the person with the illness sometimes. They can see the good and the bad in the system. They can support the system. The system needs to change. People want to change the system. Caregivers, in my view, have the most power ultimately to be able to do that through advocacy. Right. Through you know through organizing themselves as a pressure group, as a, they can also provide tremendous amount of education and awareness about their own situation and also about the conditions with the services and also about the conditions that their loved ones are facing in the community and elsewhere. Getting their voices heard. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Now, talking of that, this is the last question. What we're you and I are doing right now is recording an episode in which you've discussed a topic that's really, really important for the schizophrenia community. The episode will be saved in an archive. Do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive would be helpful? And if you do think they would be helpful, how would they be helpful? And if you don't think they would be helpful, why not? Well, I certainly think they'd be helpful, Gordon. But I think I do think that uh, the more information and the different ways information can be put out there, the better. I think that the I think people are seeking information, like we talked about. Caregivers are frantically looking for information. I think there could be a lot of different perspectives. As we said, they're not connected very well to each other right now. So it's something like this where people are able to hear about other people's experiences or find out about about resources that are available other people's experiences again can be extremely useful i think that's the type of thing that would be really good i think you could also have uh, if you're asking me what kind of thing you could do in this regard <laughs> i think also having you know some uh, serious people treatment people on talking about how to manage illness, this illness, how, how family caregivers can support the person they're caring for would be very, very helpful. And I like the idea that it's archived because people can go and find these things in the middle of the night if they need to. You know, they can find information, something that they can pass on to somebody else that they're trying to explain what's going on for them or what some of the issues are is also really useful. So now, I'd be supportive. Thank you. Now, just to come back at you over that, 
what I'd like to do is to come back to you, perhaps with another episode, to talk about precisely what you were saying, and that is having those who live the experience talking on in an episode which is archived, also in mm-hmm. podcast live, mm-hmm. like yours is being done, and so that they can hear what others are thinking and doing mm-hmm. and they're experiencing. Because if I can use a phrase, there's n- nothing like been there, done that experience. That's right. That's right. To get you know to to get the message across. So beware. I may be back to you for more. (laughs) Well, it would be my pleasure, Gordon. I hope this is helpful. I really, really would like to see a better system that's more supportive for family caregivers. And I hope some of them will pick up this mobilization toolkit and march down to their local service provider. Exactly right. Now, we've come to the end. We've only got about a minute to go. So, Penny, I want to say something straightforward and personal to you. Yours, what we've just heard from you, is the very best account of the challenges, the nature of the challenges, the things to be done that I've ever heard. Um, And I've listened, I've been at this game for job for nearly five years. Mm -hmm. And what therefore you have done is as a researcher, You've pulled together your thoughts, your insights, and your opinions and expressed them in a way that are going, is going to help people who are living with the conditions, who are wanting to help with the conditions, and family caregivers seeking that support, whether it's feeling that they're not alone, whether it's getting in touch with people who have lived the experience. So all I can say to you is, Please, please keep up this work because it's vital. Well, thank you, Gordon. Thank you for those kind words. And I agree, it's totally vital. And there's lots of people out there working on it. That's the hopeful part. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. And if any would like to make comments or ask questions, here's the email address to use. docg at familycaregiversunite.org. And everyone, please join us for our next episode, which is Schizophrenia, False Memories and Family Memoirs. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us for Schizophrenia Community Radio with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thank you for supporting Schizophrenia Community Radio. We hope you too have gained strength.